Hello everyone, it's February 1st, 2022. This week it's a good old speculation episode. What exactly is Shujin-21 doing up in Geo? At the moment, there's no way of knowing. Is it cleaning up space debris or conducting military operations? I think the answer is probably yes. Let's talk about it and lift off. And we've heard the town. Welcome to episode 344 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I've I've been doing a thing this week. Everybody probably knows that I have a bot running in our Discord that does um, title suggestion collection. Uh, all of our folks in the chat can suggest titles as we go along. And I mean, nine times out of ten, the title from the show is from one of uh, one of the people in the chat, one of the suggestions in the chat. Um, and so, like, if you see at the top of the show notes on the website or on the newsletter, uh, I say thank you to whoever suggested it. And there are some really fantastic titles that come in. Uh, most of them can't be used just because they are too in jokey. Like, it's something that gets cut from the show, but you know, they they made me laugh anyway. Um, so this. Bot, uh is running locally on my computer um like it's boy it's bad it's actually running in vs code's uh debugger <laughs> it's yeah it's that bad and so i really wanted to get i wanted to get it running on a server somewhere so that it can run all week long. Um, you can interact with it for title suggestions all week long, even though, you know, really it, it doesn't matter after Tuesday when we publish. But there were some other functions and features that I wanted to include, like this week in spaceflight history. I wanted it to be able to grab suggestions and present them on our dashboard that collect suggestions from Twitter, uh, from tweets, DMs, and uh, emails as well. I wanted to just kind of unify all this um, and then maybe make a push to actually getting our uh, our, our website up and running, um, which is also an embarrassment because I've been trying to build a website for the show for the several years that it's been running. Um, so anyway, uh, I mentioned it on the show yesterday. I don't think it made it into the edit. Um, but, um, one of our listeners, um, Fonji, who's like been listening to the show forever, um, had reached out previously, um, offering, uh, support for coding and they reached out again and I really appreciate it. I went, okay. Yeah. Like this, I just need to, I need to get somebody else looking at my code and their, their suggestion wasn't, Hey, let me code this for you. It was, Hey, I can do some code reviews. And I was like, that, that sounds great because I get, um, bugs that crop up here and there and I don't know how to fix them right away because my code is not well organized. And I'm just like, yeah, getting a second pair of eyes on this would be great. Um, so I had started rewriting the bot instead of running it in a Python library. I started rewriting it in, uh, in JavaScript in node, because that would be a lot easier for me to implement on a server, uh, somewhere for very little money. I can run Python code on a, on a Google server or an AWS server, but I would have to basically build my own environment. Like I'm sure that there are some, you know, Docker containers that, that would do it, but like I, I'd have to do a lot of work to, to actually get it to run. And there, there are, uh, free and close to free, uh, servers that run like no Dutch AS and nothing else, you know, or, or very few other things. And then personally, like I, I need to learn node because like it's fairly ubiquitous. Um, and, and it's a skill that I would like to have. So I had started working on that 
And so I pulled Fungi into a couple of repos and I just, I wanted to say thank you because just having a second pair of eyes on your work is such a huge, uh, a huge uh, benefit, I guess. And like Fungi has left a couple of comments. There hasn't been that much work, uh, over the last week that has actually been reviewable, <laughs> uh, in and of itself. But just Fungi's help with getting issues set up and a project set up on, on GitHub and like having to think not being able to think about what I want to do, but actually having to communicate it to somebody else, uh, really helped me organize, uh, my priorities. And, uh, I've already gotten some good pushback, like, Hey, maybe this is too hard to do this. How often are you actually going to need this flexibility? Just hard code it. <laughs> and like, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's not, it, there hasn't been that much work done, but I just want to say thank you, uh, on the air because it has, been mentally helpful. Uh, and it, it feels good to have somebody else who cares about a thing that you care about. So thank you, Vanji. Should Dan 21 does some space tugging or space pushing, I guess we always call it a tug. I don't know if it's actually tugging, but, um, you know, rarely, I mean, just the nature of engines, you usually want them pointed away from everything. <laughs> So China's doing something interesting. This has happened before, and I mean, not necessarily with China, but um, we don't know exactly what's going on. It's kind of caused a lot of speculation, and uh, people are talking, um, but we don't really have a lot of facts at this point. So, Dennis, you researched this very thoroughly, so I'm just going to hand this over to you because uh, <laughs> you dissected it, and uh, I think you have a pretty – I think you know about as much as we possibly can at this point. Oh, geez. Please don't set me up for spectacular failure like that. Okay. Well, no, no. you know as much as any civilian possibly can at this point, I, I would say, which I think is maybe fair enough. <laughs> um, so um, what's your assessment here? Uh, what is going on? Right. So I tried to look into this. There's a long, rich history of these uh, – um, these proximity operations happening both in Leo and in Geo, and uh, the incident, which was really a series of uh, maneuvers from a, a Chinese satellite or spacecraft, uh, is what uh, kind of has been in the news lately and has gotten a lot of people uh, talking about it. Because uh, this is the type of thing that when you hear about Chinese spacecraft interacting and moving things around, and then people say this could be weaponized, that of course spills out well beyond just the uh, space news uh, blogosphere and you know social media sphere. And so, right, so uh, specifically what happened, uh, if we want to go back, this is all involving at Shijian 21. And Shijian, right, stands for uh, practice. And so this is a long history of satellites that China has been launching since the 70s to practice various things on orbit. And in October, uh, the CASC, or China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, uh, launched uh, Shijian uh, 21, or SJ-21, I'll just say for short, SJ-21 on a Long March 3B from Xichang. And so a month later, a new object shows up alongside it. Right. And and when I'm talking about uh, these, like you're saying, uh, it's tough to figure out what's going on. Right. This is things that we're all tracking from the ground. Uh, the only information that China has provided officially is that this is a, uh, a debris uh, mitigation uh, type of uh, uh, demo uh, spacecraft. Essentially, all of the tracking is coming from uh, the U.S. Space Force's 18th Space Control Squadron. And also, uh, I want to point out that there's going to be a lot of awesome videos 
uh, that you've probably seen before, potentially, uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but uh, that is uh, Com, uh, ComSpock, which is a company that supports uh, uh, space situal, situational awareness, SSA type stuff. And so they really come up with good visualizations and videos showing the types of maneuvers that this is all about, that was happening here. So anyway, Again, a month after uh, SJ-21 launched, a new object shows up alongside it. It gets a classification 2021-094C. And this is uh, believed to be the Apogee kick motor for the spacecraft. Okay? After your Apogee kick motor gets you to GEO, right? We're talking again, this is all up in GEO, as well as near GEO and super GEO, as we'll see, we're actually going kind of around that band quite a bit in terms of radial distance from the Earth. But um, typically you're... you're kick motor goes and performs a maneuver to keep it away from your spacecraft so there isn't potentially any possibility of uh, contacting it or causing any trouble there. But in this case, since this is all about rendezvous and proximity ops, they wanted to keep the Apogee kick motor uh, alongside the spacecraft. And this isn't the first time that China or presumably other nations have done this as well. We noticed this mysterious object appearing alongside it. That was reported last, again, late last year. And then in December, uh, so just a little over a month ago, uh, it approached a defunct uh, Beidou 2 G2 navigation satellite, right? So Beidou, also called Compass, uh, this is uh, the GNSS uh, for China, their version of uh, what is our GPS. And this uh, Beidou 2 failed all the way back in 2009 when it was launched. And so it's kind of been sitting up there in a potentially partially fragmented state and just dead in the water. And so it seemed like a perfect uh, target for SJ-20. One, And so it not only approached it and docked with it, but it towed it, it performed a burn and towed it to an orbit 3,000 kilometers beyond GEO. So typically graveyard orbits, right, are just something closer to one-tenth of that distance beyond GEO, uh, 300 kilometers or so. And so it really pushed it out there into the super GEO type orbit. And then just days before uh, we recorded, literally just Four days ago, it undocked and has since returned to GEO. So it is still there and still capable, apparently, of being able to take, uh, not only interact with other spacecraft like it did with its uh, Apogee kick motor, but also went and straight up took a, you know, a Beidou 2 and moved it uh, well beyond GEO. Uh, again, some 3,000 kilometers there and returned. So uh, it's there. Uh, like you were saying, uh, I think earlier, David, that this isn't the only time this has happened. We're certainly not the only country that has done this. Um, and so there's a much bigger space militarization narrative here. And so uh, before I forget, I just want to point out one of the most interesting stories of a spacecraft that I had only learned about from the phenomenal podcast, The Space Above Us, <laughs> which David, you, you turned me on to. Uh, a classified shuttle mission may have actually uh, released uh, a spacecraft called the Prowler, which the idea was is doing a similar or could do similar things to what uh, SJ-21 is currently doing on orbit. Of course, this was back in the 90s when this happened, I believe. Can I tangent quickly? Uh, Jim Cooper announced that he's not running for a re-election so like in the in the space security the space military world like that's a, a bit of a big deal he's a house uh like a, a house of representatives congress critter is he very so hawkish a, rep or? a representative yes yeah and i mean he's he's a democrat so oddly enough that often leads to strong military it, it, it's 
it's such a weird world. It's a weird country that we live in. Uh, but the under uh, liberal administrations, the um, military funding tends to to go up. Or, or at very least, I'm an Air Force brat. My dad tended to to have more money to spend uh, during uh, Democratic um, administrations. But yeah, like um, he he was one of the people behind uh, Space Corps or Space Force, I believe. Yeah, no, something like that. I mean, certainly uh, a lot of our foreign policy stuff and our power projection is definitely bipartisan at the top levels. Mm-hmm. No one's going to really go against it and be painted as un-American. Right. And so it really is just a matter of uh, support, support, support. So, okay. Interesting. So, yeah. So, uh, Jim Cooper announcing he's not running again. So, uh, like I mentioned, I mean, there, there, there may or may not have been this prowler back in the 90s uh, zooting around and checking things out, uh, snooping on other spacecraft. But I just kind of want to give a little history of uh, of who's been doing what. And this isn't comprehensive at all, but also interesting uh, to talk about what, how exactly did SJ-21 uh, dock with the Beto-2. And so uh, most um, uh, relevant uh, in terms of, or rather the nearest in terms of history is this same month, uh, a USA-270 spacecraft uh, went and essentially moved up to a pair of Xijian uh CGN-12 uh, spacecraft, uh, designated 01 and 02. Uh, and by went, got up to it, I mean got within 73 kilometers of it. But um, this USA-270 is something that uh, it, it's called a, a Hornet or a Geosynchronous Space Situational Awareness Program satellite, so GSSAP. Uh, that might sound familiar because one of the, a pair of them launched on an Atlas V last week. If you remember that Atlas V launch, uh, it's the same type of spacecraft. And so this, hmm. uh, yeah, so, so one of those, I mean, this USA-270 was launched uh, years ago, uh, uh, specifically back in uh, 2016. But, you know, just, uh, you know, a week or so uh, ago, uh, approached this pair of Shijian spacecraft. And then after it performed its maneuver near them, the Shijians moved away. And so this is, this is they're on uh, near geosynchronous. So if you're wondering, like they're, they're a little shy of uh, getting all the way out to the belt. And so thus they kind of can run a lap around and interact with other spacecraft if they want to. And so this type of thing is happening a lot. And, 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 and I mean, you're probably thinking if you're, <laughs> you're trying to think about that Russian one <laughs> a few years ago, and I'll talk about that in a bit too. But yeah, there, this, this stuff is just keeps happening. And the thing is, it's going to keep happening more and more. And so in particular, I learned some new terms. Uh, they call this a tactic, technique, and procedure, or TTP, uh, which is part of counter space operations. When you keep an eye out for other spacecraft, essentially uh, getting near you, and then you react uh, similarly. And so this sort of uh, tit for tat, back and forth, uh, spacecraft from other countries interacting with each other in this way is, I can understand why you say there's going to be this I mean, there is a national defense element to it. I mean, there has to be, uh, whether we like it or not. And so while SJ-21, I, I, you know, it's classified as a space debris mitigation satellite, and I don't doubt that it is. I mean, it's it's unfalsifiable at this point. We, we don't know whether it has any uh, military purposes. Some people point at, uh, well, the fact that it's classified or that, you know, China's entire space program is military. So everything, in a sense, has to be. Um, I... I that that could be the case, but it, it is also consistent with just being them testing some space debris technology, and that's why I think it's really cool what they're you know they're doing and they're pulling off. If you can do the one thing, you can do the other, right? So it's not it, they're not mutually yeah, right. exclusive. So. Exactly. 
It, I mean, it, it depends on your capabilities because they're, you know, a, a cooperative versus a non-cooperative um, grapple or docking. Like th those are very different things. Um, but the fact that they docked with a dead and possible, possibly fragmented um, kick motor says that they, they do have non-cooperative docking capability. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I, I think... Honestly, to me, that reads as a flex, right? Like, hey, look what we can do. That's a nice satellite you have over there. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and like, yeah, it's, Dennis, like you said, it's it's such a weird conflict. Like, on the one hand, this is really cool. Like, good job yeah. cleaning up some space debris. That's really good. And doing it without, you know, anybody pressuring them to do so. Uh, but on the other hand that capability is a, a weapon in and of itself. You know, if you, if you have a furnace, yeah, you could be burning, uh, you could be burning trash in it, but you could also be burning sensitive documents, right? Like, mm -hmm. or, you know, or, or things that we don't want to burn. I guess you can't really throw a house in a, in a furnace, but like, you, you understand what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. like may, maybe I should step my, uh, my analogy back to a campfire, you know, like if you have a campfire, you can cook food, but you can also uh, set somebody else's hut on fire. So I, I feel really conflicted and I'm really, honestly, I think I'm, I'm being optimistic inside my own head, which is an unusual feeling because <laughs> like, yeah, it, it is really exciting that they were able to do this and, uh, you know, apparently do it fairly casually. So, yeah. So, so one way or another, uh, even if this is a purely peaceful demonstration, Again, it opens up the ability for now the second nation to be able to do these sort of offensive mm -hmm. maneuvers in geo. Mm -hmm. And so we're we're not alone in that anymore in the United States. And we shouldn't um, be. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I don't believe in unique yeah. rights to be able to uh, yeah. do certain things with your military that other nations are just locked out of. Don't want to go down a whole rabbit hole there, but uh, obviously not all, <laughs> not all nations are the same behavior on the global stage. I'm not saying that, but I also just don't think the United States has a sort of divine right to right. some things that other nations don't have. So so what I found is really interesting is uh, uh, there was a report in the U.S. Air Force's uh, China Airspace Studies Institute, or uh, CSI, Cassie, I don't know what they call it that, but the, the author uh, wrote a nice uh, uh, nine-page uh, uh, brief uh, or report on Xianjian uh, uh, 21, SJ21. And some interesting thing, that I think the most interesting thing that comes out of this report, other than just being a nice summary of uh, what's going on there, is that based on uh, Chinese bloggers with a, a good, uh, a Chinese blogger with a good understanding of the space industry, as well as OSAM, which is uh, on-orbit servicing assembly manufacturing. So that's the bigger umbrella for what we're talking about now. If, you, if we need to label this uh, story under a certain uh, heading in space at some point, um, is that they've already tested having a grappling arm, right? I, I don't know about you guys, but that's the first thing I would think of when you're going and interacting, like the uh, the mission extension vehicle from Northrop uh, mm. or Northrop subsidiary, right? Uh, you, you go and you grab the the client spacecraft and you you work with it that way. And so China's already done that with their uh, Xijian 17 spacecraft. Um, according to the head of the U.S. Space uh, Command, uh, that it also did rendezvous and proximity operations in GEO and had a grappling arm. So this this report from uh, the U.S. Air Force essentially says that based on this blogger's knowledge of what's going on and that Xijian already did the grappling arm, that's probably going to try something different. And so two other technologies that it might try is debris lasing, which is to essentially evaporate your debris with a laser, but... 
<laughs> Apogee kick motors are a little too big for that. Mm-hmm. So this would probably be something like a net for going and capturing your uh, your target spacecraft that way. Again, this is this is speculation. It's not unfounded speculation. Uh, in in the academic literature, we know that uh, Chinese scientists and engineers are pursuing both of those types of technology. So we know that that's something that is within uh, China's space. Uh, and military, cap- uh, you know, at least research sphere. I don't know, how, mm-hmm. know exactly what I'm saying there. That's and fair. So, no, that's yeah. Fair. So, so maybe this was a net, which I mean is pretty, pretty wild. I mean, you know, that's something. That's one of the types, but that's 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 the speculation there for why it might actually have been a net that SJ21 used to capture the Beidou. A net seems really messy. Uh, don't talk about her like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I walked into that, didn't I? Um, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't seem practical in space to me. Like you'd want to use, like at least I would think you would want to use anything else because it would be much, it would just be much easier. Um, because with a net, you have to, it's just this loose bit of mass. It's like floating just beyond the satellite. And that seems like it would introduce all kinds of instabilities and problems with maneuvers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm overstating the complexity of it, but it seems like it would be really tricky. So I'm kind of surprised that anyone would ever use. A My net. only guess is that one, it lets it lets you stay away from the target while, while when you, mm-hmm. you know, you, it's it's somewhat, you fire this net rather than you physically get, you know, it's, it's melee versus a ranged attack. You know, in video games. Um, sorry, I say attack. Uh, it also could be a, uh, you know, again, a peaceful operation. Uh, but, um, you know, debris removal. But yeah, so I think that's got to be the one thing. And then maybe if you're dealing with, uh, again, maybe if Beidou 2 is partially fragmented, then it's really, really tough to characterize where its center of mass is and what kind of moments would be exerted on the vehicle once you lock, you know, arm to arm with it. And in that case, maybe with this net, you you kind of can encase it in your net. And now you've got your net, your tether, and your spacecraft. And then at that point, maybe you take a little time and you characterize, okay, <laughs> how is this thing moving? And how, how how can I maneuver it to where I want it to go without screwing up my spacecraft and, you know, having us collide or something bad that happens? Uh, that's that's just firing off the hip. <laughs> is that, yeah. that, that, that remote... Being able yeah. to throw it from a range, and then also being able to kind of take catch your breath—you're not <laughs> attached to it—and then trying to figure out the characteristics right. of your now new spacecraft, which is <laughs> two uh, connected to each other. Well, what, was it Astroscale who did uh, uh, both a uh, like a javelin and a net? So somebody recently did uh, did tests of both, and I mean, yeah, it's it's messy, but like. If all you need to do is add a little bit of delta v, it's it doesn't seem like it's that bad. But I mean, yeah, huge amount of engineering so that you don't wind up with just a, a lumpy. Colin in the chat says a net will help convert rotational momentum into linear momentum. So when it grapples a piece of tumbling debris, it might make it simpler to null out the relative momentum. And I think that's one of the mm. big things. Is like, like it's really tough to grab things in zero g. <laughs> like everything just bounces away from you. So. Yeah, uh, something something soft does seem called for, but yeah, David, I, I totally get the <laughs> the what's what are you gonna do then <laughs> part of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, just as far as because like I, I was picking up from you, David, I feel like you're saying just as far as a single piece of technology and hardware, a debris or sorry, a net is a much more complicated piece of hardware than an arm. But then again, I mean, if the arm has to articulate in different ways, I don't know. It's tough. To say. Well, it, it it's it's less predictable. It's harder to test on the ground, but 
it can do a hell of a lot more. Um, how many things can you actually grab with an arm successfully? Very, very few. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and the key thing there is that if the spacecraft is rotating, then a net is pretty much your only option, right? right. So mm-hmm. in that case, you have to, yeah. And by the way, going back just for a moment, I know this is a little bit off topic, but going back to uh, the Prowler spacecraft that was launched back in the 90s. Hmm. Uh, so on the Wikipedia, it says that it carried some modifications to reduce its visibility to ground-based radar, but then once it was retired, those modifications ceased to be effective. So I'm just curious, what could that be? Um, if you have a spacecraft that was, you know, kind of like stealthily moving about, what was it employing that made it less visible to ground-based radar back in the 90s? That that just sounds fascinating, but I have no idea what that I mean, be. are there things that are just kind of dark to radar? Like yeah, materials it, that could be deployed, like maybe it was physically deployed and then cut loose? Uh, pro- uh, no, that that's... That kind of technique is almost certainly like a chaff technique where you're um, making yourself, you're actually presenting a, a bigger radar reflection, but um, it disguises your particular location kind of like a, like a smoke screen. Like if somebody throws a smoke grenade or if airplanes deploy a, a curtain of smoke uh, in front of battleships, you know exactly where they are or you, you know where they are. You know that they're there, but you don't know exactly where they are. You don't know how, what they look like and what capabilities they have. My, my guess is that they're, they're using geometry, um, so that they, I mean, like if you look at stealth airplanes, like it's all about the geometry. Yeah. There are some materials that can, um, soak up some of that radar energy instead of reflecting it. But the, the big thing is to just redirect it so that it doesn't, uh, reflect back to whoever admitted it back to the receiver. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's exactly what Colin and Chad just said. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so on a on a spacecraft, yeah, de- deploying things doesn't seem like a good idea. It's it's not going to be in place for very long. It's it's almost certainly just. Uh, I mean, it's kind of the same problem as as like Starlink or you know mega constellations making them dimmer. Although in that case, the the I mean, dark set was my idea. <laughs> yeah. Or, or something very similar to, to Vanta Black, right? Like a lot of these radar absorptive materials are probably carbon nanotubes or something, something similar. Basically very, very tiny shag carpet. <laughs> but yeah, basically, uh, so just to kind of, I guess, wrap things up with, uh, uh, again, a little more context of, you know, when has this happened before and what's going on? Uh, a few years ago in 2018, there was another uh, Chinese satellite, uh, the Tongxin uh, Jishu Xi'an, or TJS-3, which uh, people think also kept its Apogee kick motor along for the ride. And in that case, it tried a, an opera, a maneuver called spoofing, which is uh, essentially you hope that ground assets will mistake the Apogee kick motor for the spacecraft and won't notice that the two have separated or that they're two separate ones. And then the spacecraft goes and slips away somewhere. Unfound. And so, uh, both, uh, I think that I believe the TGS three, but I'm pretty sure the SJ 21, this recent one, uh, both did these maneuvers near their Apogee kick motors when it was more likely to not be picked up by the U S military ground assets. And so that's kind of suspicious in a sense of, you know, <laughs> or, or, you know, uh, testing this spoofing ability, this ability to try to, to try to substitute your spacecraft that you care about with a dummy and have people tracking the dummy and still thinking it was the important spacecraft. Yeah, that that's that's a really tough 
challenge because you're going up against people who can <laughs> do a lot of intuition about about data. Yeah, and the fact that we know that both of them were spoofing <laughs> attempts <laughs> kind of tells you that they didn't exactly fool people. But well, I mean, eventually one would start to move and the, and the other wouldn't, right? So, because I mean, the Apogee Kickboarder can't go anywhere, right? right? But, so, but but maybe you know, maybe you don't have continuous twenty four seven coverage yeah. of them, and so during that is when you do your substitution. It's like in uh, Naruto, you know, they do the little substitution jutsus. And so you, you think you're attacking the other ninja and then suddenly you find out you're attacking a log of wood because they, they substituted themselves for the log of wood. I, I, I don't really watch Naruto, but I, <laughs> I get what you're saying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so uh, in any event, I had already referenced that uh, it was in 2019 that Russia got within a couple kilometers of an Intel set. And so this stuff has been going on. Uh, these, these, I like the one term, these snuggle sats um, with uh, around geo uh, people. I mean, it's it's power politics. People are messing around with each other. And so I think what would be really good, I, I saw a, uh, a person uh, from the U.S. Uh, uh, military, I believe, uh, had suggested something like coming up with a uh, incidents at sea agreement like the U.S. and uh, Soviet Union did in 1972, where you would essentially agree to like, let's just take these steps, realizing that we are both nations that are going to be doing what we do, and in this case now up in orbit. But in that case, it had to do with boats and these incidents where uh, uh, American and Soviet ships were getting close to each other. And you don't want to inadvertently have something that is not intended to be an act of war or an offensive act be interpreted as such, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we just talked about the Norwegian rocket scare last week. And so uh, you could come up with just steps that you agree on ahead of time to avoid colliding with each other. Uh, keeping a safe distance, using accepted international signals when you're near each other. Uh, in the case of uh, ships, that means one thing. But now, you know, basically make it clear that if if uh, USA 270 is coming close to a Shijian, that it's clear why it's maneuvering close to them in a non-offensive way. And similarly, if Shijian uh, or some you know Chinese spacecraft or a Russian spacecraft go and snoop near a uh, Intel set, that it's clear that it's not an offensive action. You know, it, maybe some kind of agreement or groundwork there I think would be useful rather than just having to uh, speculate about the other nation's motives and secrecy. But um, secrecy is kind of the name of the game, unfortunately, uh, with a lot of these uh, militaries at this level. So in any event, that's kind of everything that I was able to figure out about Xi Jinping 21. And this, this is, I mean, this is a big deal, kind of. You know, this is something that is we're going to be talking about probably for the rest of the show. I yeah. mean, in terms of just, you know, it's, it's just going to be a, a part of space, right? If space flight. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. They're not putting that genie back in the bottle. As right. Say, so. well put. Yeah. Man, Dennis, that was that was unexpected. Like this topic was unexpected, but like that was really cool. Thanks. All right, let's do three short and sweets this week. Ben, what is the first one? This this is so cool. I, I love uh, failure analysis. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, NASA identifies cause of stuck solar panel on Lucy. One of Lucy's two solar arrays, the Plus Y array, failed to latch in place shortly after its launch last year, unfurling only 347 degrees rather than a full 360. The other array, called Minus Y, deployed fully, and together they are able to supply more than 90% of the expected power to the spacecraft. 
Engineers have now identified the likely reason for the anomaly. The arrays unfurl when a motor pulls a lanyard, which then pulls one end of the fan-shaped array towards its final circular deployment. At some point during deployment, a loss of tension had occurred, which caused the lanyard to fall off a spool and wrap around a motor shaft, leaving 75 centimeters left to pull. The team's two options now are cranking the motor harder to try and free the lanyard or simply accepting the lower power generation level. Interesting failure there. I'm betting they're going to have to do one and then settle for the other. Well, yeah, right? Like, why not try for the first? And if you can't, then settle for the other. I don't know, man. Cranking a motor harder (laughs) to try to free something? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that could go wrong. (laughs) Something might snap and then they lose all tension, whatever, and then the whole thing retracts. And then next up, JMS is officially shut down. The Joint Mission System software platform conceived more than a decade ago by the DoD to track satellites and orbital debris is being decommissioned after years of poor performance and cost overruns. The U.S. Space Force decided in 2018 to replace JMS with an agile development software program called Space C2 that relies on a commercial platform called Warp Core. This new system will allow the DoD to better monitor objects and potential threats in space. And finally, Anomaly pauses Astroscale's demo mission. Since March of last year, Japanese company Astroscale's LCD mission has been on orbit as part of its debris removal demonstration. The mission includes the company's 175-kilogram servicer spacecraft interacting with a separate 17-kilogram client spacecraft, with the latter a stand-in for space debris. Earlier tests have been successful, but the most recent test, an attempt to autonomously capture the client for the first time, was paused after controllers on the ground identified anomalous spacecraft conditions. The anomaly occurred while the servicer performed autonomous relative navigation. So while the spacecraft are both currently safe, the mission is on hold until the anomaly can be resolved. All right, moving on to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, We have... uh what, five winners or so? I'm not even going to bother to count, but we have Deskin Miller, Patrick McGuire, Ben Hallard, uh, The Greek, and Negative Entropy. Yep, five. Okay. And the clue <laughs> was failing what? We had quite a few guesses pretty early on, so this was uh, this was actually much, much easier to guess than I thought it would have been. Yeah, it's an easy-to-Google term. Oh, that's true, yeah. It's an yeah. actual term. It's not just a poetic thing that you came up right, with. Right, Yeah. All right. So this week in spaceflight history is the 7th of February, 2008. It was the launch of STS-122 with the Columbus module on board. Uh, so first off, uh, the orbiter uh, in question was Atlantis, not Columbia. Who was it? Was it somebody made a joke about Atlantis being underwater? Oh, oh, I think it, I think it was, uh, negative entropy. Uh, yeah, ma- very good joke. Um, but you know, Columbia also would have been a, a good orbiter to pair here. Um, this mission was also known as ISS 1E. So the, as in terms of the assembly missions, uh, and this, this was actually the 21st ISS, uh, assembly mission. So just to give you, uh, a little bit of reference, I'm not going to talk about Columbus. I don't think at all, really. Um, but to, to give you a little context at this point, uh, three of the four saw segments, uh, were installed on the truss. So, uh, that's the solar array wing, um, that, um, it's, it's P five and six and S five and six. Um, and not only were 
uh, three of them up there, but P6 had actually been moved out to its final location um, on the end of the truss. Uh, P6 for a long time was mounted uh, on top of Z1. But, you know, the, the space station is really starting to look like the ISS that we know and love today. Um, so it had, uh, three of the four saws and then it also had Zarya, Unity's, Vesda, Destiny, uh, and Harmony, uh, installed as well as, I believe, all three of its pressurized mating adapters. The, the PMAs are the angle, the, the weird angled, uh, offset. Um, adapters. And for a hot second, I was trying to figure out this particular configuration's uh, total pressurized volume uh, to give you a comparison to what it is today. And Hmm. it wound up being too much work, so I didn't do it. Uh, All right, so back to SDS-122. Um, launch attempt number one took place on the 6th of December 2007. Uh, Keeping in mind, uh, this week would be the 7th of February. <laughs> it's uh, quite a ways in the future. Or, or it, it took it took quite a long time between the, the first launch attempt and the actual launch. I mean, not, not quite a long time when you take into consideration some of the longer launch delays, but yeah, it, it, it took a couple of tries. That's not nothing. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. This, this is not a uh, recycle and, and wait for the weekend. So what happened was while they were loading the external tank with its propellants, uh, actually 16 minutes into propellant loading, two of the four LH2 eco sensors failed wet, hence the clue. So the eco is a, an engine cutoff sensor. It, ECO engine cutoff. Um, and these, uh, are placed in the liquid hydrogen tank. Um, they're a redundant system, uh, to help prevent engine starvation. So in, in the case that propellant consumption, uh, is not what you thought it was, the eco sensors are sort of a, a final preventative measure to make sure you don't run dry. So it's totally redundant. There are four of these suckers, right? And they are redundant. Like they're, they're redundant amongst themselves and they're redundant, uh, compared to other systems, but they're really important. Um, think about all the ways that you could calculate your propellant reserves. So like without doing direct measurements, um, you know how much fuel the, the engine consumes at a given throttle, but using that to calculate remaining fuel or remaining propellant really is an iffy situation because you have to rely on the precision and the accuracy of the fuel valves. Um, and you also have to, or, or potentially you could rely on fuel line pressure sensors. And, and like, there are also flow sensors in the engine, but like, I'm, I'm kind of like trying to think about all the ways that you could indirectly measure how much fuel you have left. Um, you could also, um, look at your acceleration, right? Because you know how much fuel must be consumed per unit acceleration, which would help abstract out the position of the fuel valves, but acceleration changes depending on the propellant mix. And so now you're having to take that into consideration. So like there are a million variables that all interact that you could potentially use uh, to guess how much fuel you have left. Um, but eco sensors are really the only direct measurement that you have of how much fuel is left in the tank. Um, so 
Yes, they're redundant, but they are super important. The launch commit criteria, the LCC, requires three out of the four sensors to be good. And so like three out of four is because during flight, they ignore the first dry reading and then the second one results in a shutdown. So really you need two sensors to read dry and then you shut down the engines. There is just so much detail. I'm trying to stick to my the order that I had worked out ahead of time. So LCC requires three out of four to be good on launch because you're going to have to rely on two of them. So you don't want to have fewer than two. Um, just so that you have a little bit of uh, voting uh, happening. So you got some redundancy. Um, so um, as of STS-122, no eco-initiated shutdown had ever happened. And, and I'm using a past, uh, a past tense here because they didn't know about the future. As far as I know, no uh, eco-initiated shutdown has ever happened. But at this point, you know, they're, they're only looking into the past. And, and they were like, yeah, w- this has never happened before. But even though that had never happened, it, it was very clear that if you have the engines shut down due to starvation, um, you're going to lose the crew. Like you're not going to recover from that. Um, so when, when they saw two out of the four fail, they decided to uh, scrub the launch and initially they delayed it 48 hours. So that was launch attempt one between attempt one and attempt two. They did a bunch of work and mostly it came down to the different options that they, that they could go down and it, the, the options weren't good, but there, there was sort of a clear winner. So first off, as they're working through their options, um, the issue uh, appeared to be wiring inside the external tank. So how do you know that the issue is inside the wiring without doing any additional testing? Well, let me dig into how these ecosensors work. So first off, um, when they say an ecosensor, they're not just talking about the actual point sensors. Um, and there's a fantastic diagram uh, that will be in the show notes. The ecosystem uh, includes a point sensor electronics box, which is located in avionics bay five. Um, it has a couple of inputs and a couple of outputs. Um, so, uh, some of the inputs are checkout commands that can be issued from the ground or, or from the, from the ground support equipment. Uh, it takes power. It, this is shuttle. So it's 28 volts of power. It's insane. Uh, like not cars run on 12 volts of power. Like, come on. Um, <laughs> And then it also takes, uh, inputs from those point sensors. Those point sensors are located in the external tank, even though the point sensor electronics box is inside the shuttle. The electronics box also has an output and it outputs to what appear to be more than one MDM, a multiplexer demultiplexer. And so that is how it communicates, uh, with the, with the main computer or the, the GPC, the general purpose computer. And, and that's where the logic is implemented. Um, by the way, there are five GPCs on shuttle and I don't know which one, uh, handled the eco logic. So the, the point sensors right now, we're just talking about the four that are dedicated to eco. Um, but there are actually a gazillion of them. Uh, there are seven additional sensors at the top of each tank and they indicate the fill level from 98% to a hundred percent to a hundred and 
6% or 109% and then also one for overfill. But there's seven of those in each tank. And then the LOX tank also has a 5% um, sensor. Uh, but they, they really care about running out of fuel uh, for one reason or another. I guess that's harder to measure. Or maybe if you just measure one, you're fairly confident of the other. Uh, maybe it's that if you run out of fuel, that's worse than running out of oxidizer. I tend to think that's probably the issue. Uh, it's okay to starve your your engine of, of oxidizer, but not okay to starve it of fuel. Um, Chris in the chat says, is loss of vehicle and crew because fuel starvation makes the engine explode? And yes, that that's the deal. And I believe that starving the engines of oxi- uh, oxygen, not just oxidizer, but ac- actual oxygen, uh, is, uh, is less traumatic. I could be wrong, though. Okay. Um, so a bunch of different sensors. They all feed into... Um, the point sensor electronics box. Now, during tanking, each of these sensors is fed an override signal that results in them reading dry. So the signal, as I couldn't find too much detail, but apparently the signal goes to the sensor itself and overrides its internal uh, mechanics. So instead of um, sending a signal back based on what the sensor is reading, it just goes, hey, I'm dry. So the sensors are held dry during the fast fill phase of the ET, and then they're released during the T minus nine hold or the, the hold that's baked into the schedule at T minus nine. And so this, this is actually kind of elegant, right? You test the eco sensors. Um, you let them go wet when you're beginning to fill. Um, and then you hold everything dry. You do your fast fill. You go into T minus nine and then you release them. And then you can see them toggle on as you finish topping off the tank. Like that's a, that's a very thorough test. And it's one that doesn't impact your schedule. Like you can do this pretty low cost. You get to see false negatives and false positives represented here. During launch attempt number one, uh, two of the eco sensors reported wet while the override signal was running. So they hadn't even finished tanking the ET. Um, and two of the sensors were saying, Hey, I'm wet. And this is how they were able to isolate the issue to wiring without having to do any additional testing or diagnostics. If the sensors are saying they're wet, but you have them, however the voltage is set up, if you got that voltage pegged to one side, right? Because I'm assuming that these wet-dry sensors uh, are basically looking at voltage across the sensor, and you're just going to flood it with uh, voltage from the outside. Um, and, and so if you've got those things pegged to a state where they should be dry, and your box is reading wet, that means the box is not communicating with the sensor properly. Conversely, if they fail dry, once the override is removed, that could be caused by the actual sensor being uh, malfunctioning, or it could be the wiring, or it could be the box, or it could be all these other things. But if you fail wet, you know exactly what that is. In this case, you successfully take the sensor itself and the, the, the electronics box to some extent, you take them out of the causation chain. So with all of that background information, you can see the options are pretty slim here, right? The options they were considering were either removing the LCC, the launch commit criteria, or repairing the system. Repairing the system probably would have meant moving back to the VAB. It's tough to tell because like they can do a heck of a lot of things on the pad. But as they're considering this issue, their history told them 
that ecosystem failures at, at that point had always spontaneously resolved themselves on the next launch attempt. And they decided that it would be great if that was the case. You know, that means that it's not a new issue. It's an whatever this old issue is. We don't, we're not exactly sure what it is, but at least it's an issue that we've lived with in the past, kind of the, the devil, you know. And what's really interesting is all of this information leads up to me saying they decided to alter the LCC and commit to the launch with only two sensors functioning. But that's not what happened. And that's like, it took so much reading for me to realize that that isn't what happened. I, I, I almost assumed that that's what, what happened given the way uh, that things had, had worked. But remember, lives are on the line here. It's never been an issue before, but this is a mission critical failure that we can avoid if these sensors work. So instead, they uh, abandoned the two options of removing the LCC or repairing the system. And instead, they doubled down on the LCC. They hardened the, this, uh, this particular criteria, uh, criterium singular. They decided, no, all four sensors have to work. We're not going to be satisfied with just three of them working. All four have to work. And in addition, while we're doing the ascent, we're going to do special monitoring of the ecosystem to make sure that they're working, um, to better their odds of, uh, of no issue cropping up during the ascent. They actually shortened the launch window. Originally it was five minutes. They shortened it down to one minute because they're launching to ISS. The more fuel reserves you have on board, the wider you can make your window. So by narrowing the window, they ensure that they have lots of fuel left over um, so they don't run into this issue uh, or are less likely to run into the issue, I guess. And while they did that, they kind of tied a red string around their finger and promised uh, in the future to reevaluate the ecosystem and also to update the engines. Um, after, uh, as a result of this, uh, I, I believe as a result of this, the SSMEs uh, had their flow sensors updated um, so that they were more reliable, I believe, so they could remove some of the reliance on the ecosensors should the issue prove to be persistent. Okay. So going into attempt two, uh, it ended up taking place on the 9th of December, um, which is slightly more than the 48 hour postponement that they had planned. Um, but while they're doing it, ecosensor number three failed wet and they scrubbed the launch due to their newly reinforced LCC. Pretty cool to see that actually, uh, go into effect at this point. Even though it's the beginning of the month, they know that the work that they're going to have to do to fix this problem or to diagnose and then fix this problem was going to rule out a launch in December. So, you know, at that, at that point, we're, we're pushing into January, getting closer, uh, <laughs> getting closer to, uh, the actual, uh, launch of the vehicle. So we go back into, uh, you know, intermediary work. What are we doing between these launch events? Well, one of the first things they did is a very cool technique that I'm happy to talk about. It's called time domain reflectometry. I'm going to take a sec from time domain reflectometry to read a comment from Chris in the chat, which, which is pretty cool. We have three ways of determining fuel on board a 787 flow sensors prior to the fuel injector injectors, capacitance, and as a last resort, low level switches. All right. So back to time domain reflectometry. 
This is such a cool technique. And it, it really is, it's the same as going out and banging on something with a hammer and listening to how it sounds, right? Or like when you're, when you're trying to find a stud in the wall, you tap on the, on the drywall and listen to the sound that echoes back. It's kind of the same thing, but, uh, very complicated. So what they do is they send a signal down the wire that they're testing and they listen for reflected voltage. So it's the same idea as like if a window is cracked, it doesn't transmit light as well as it could, but it still reflects light across that crack. Um, a faulty wire does the exact same thing. Uh, it reflects a signal without entirely blocking it. So the amplitude of that reflection is related to the impedance of the discontinuity of, of the break in the wire. Um, and the time delay is related to the position of the discontinuity down the wire, right? It makes sense. The yeah. louder the echo, the more reflective whatever is echoing is. And the longer it takes for the echo to get back to you, the farther away whatever you're echoing against is. This is such a cool technique because it, it makes total sense, but electronically, it's really hard to do this. Like, like maybe you could, you could convince, um, an oscilloscope to do something like this or, or a logic analyzer to do something like this. But I have a feeling that you need very specialized electronics to do it uh, with any amount of reliability. So when they, when they did their reflectometry work, they located the issue in one place and it actually turned out to be the external tank LH2 feed through. Um, this is, um, a, a pin and socket connector and Mike, you're probably pretty good at estimating the number of pins and connectors like this. That's what, like 30 pins or something. And, uh, it, it's just a bunch of pins, uh, arrayed in, it looks hexagonally arrayed, not nested circles. Uh, but it's just a bunch of pins and a connector that you can plug into the side of the tank. Uh, I, th I think it was just the two pins that run to the two eco sensors that were experiencing a problem. They were a little flaky. Um, don't know why everything is, uh, gold plated. So there shouldn't be oxidation building up. Uh, it, it maybe it was a mechanical issue. Maybe some of the, some of the wings on the sockets had kind of loosened up. Maybe there's some grease in the connection. Who knows? Um, uh, but the solution is elegant and terrifying at the same time. The solution was to solder the joint shut or, or solder the connection shut. Um, so they, they brought in two specialists um, who had done work like this before and they tinned each of the pins. They tinned each of the sockets and soldered the suckers together. There's a, a photo that'll be in the show notes uh, that shows two of the pins soldered together. To be fair, it is a beautiful solder joint that we see in this photo, but it, it seems like a nightmare to mechanically do this pin by pin. It's going to take forever. And on top of it, you can no longer disconnect this, this connector anymore, but it doesn't matter. Like just solder it closed. Uh, everything will be fine. We're, we're throwing the external tank in the drink anyway. So while they're working on that, they also took care of another issue um, that had been noted, I, I'm assuming, during uh, payload integration. But basically, uh, one of the aft radiator retract hoses was bent. So the radiators are on the doors of, of the cargo bay, 
and one of the hoses was bent. Uh, they described it as being shaped like an Omega. If you told me that a hose was bent, I'd be like, yeah, it's a hose. It's intended to flex. But if it's shaped like an Omega, <laughs> I'm thinking there might be something wrong, right? <laughs> so all, all they did was they built a special tool to shove it back in the storage box. Uh, and they said, <laughs> well, we'll keep an eye on it. They were pretty confident that if uh, if it started leaking, they would be able to shut the radiator down if the hose started leaking and they, they don't need all of the radiators to run. Um, the, the aft radiator is a, is a backup. So moving into attempt three, uh, initially they had planned, uh, to do launch attempt number three on January the 10th. Um, but for one reason or another, it actually wound up happening on February 7th. And I feel like the 10th was a number or was a date named with somebody's arm twisted behind their back. Uh, it sounded like it was just uh, a date to get the press to shut up because uh, they kept asking. <laughs> uh, so yeah, on attempt three, all four sensors worked, um, which is good because the LCC was still in place, the the all four requirement and, and the launch went beautifully. Like I want to say absolutely no issues occurred. Um, but I'm going to say it with like a little bit of sarcasm, like fewer than expected issues occurred. So it basically puts this launch into the no issues bucket. There was only one possible foam impact and that happened, uh, 444 seconds into ascent. So, uh, so, so real high up in the atmosphere. I believe that the foam impacted on the starboard ohms pod. Um, I wasn't able to find a report of like where it might have impacted, but on orbit, they noticed that there was a raised insulation blanket on the starboard ohms pod. And then after looking at it closer, they realized that the blanket was actually torn slightly. Um, but they cleared it to land as is like, you know, they didn't do any on orbit repairs or this would be a much more famous shuttle mission. You know, the, the ohms pods are basically the least heated part of the exterior of the shuttle. So it's like, it's right, right. The starboard ohms pod had a little bit of a torn, uh, blanket. The port ohms pod lost a LOM stinger tile, uh, an L ohms stinger tile. I don't know what, what LOMs or L ohms stands for. Uh, I'm assuming ohms is orbital maneuvering system. Don't know. I don't know what the L is. Left ohms. Oh, no, yeah. no, 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 no. That's the thing. Is that what my first in instinct was that it was left ohms, but the, the loam stinger tiles, I believe exist on, uh, both ohms pods. They're not roams on the other? I don't, I don't think so. Huh. Low temperature, Colin suggests. Yeah, that seems pretty reasonable. But anyway, these stinger tiles are on the very back of the ohms. They, they basically, when when you look at the back of an ohms pod, you, there are tiles there that kind of are interspersed in and around the uh, the actual uh, the actual motors, um, and it, it was one of those guys that fell off. There's a PDF that'll be in the show notes um, where they actually have a photo of this exact. Uh, tile that fell off. But again, just like the, the blankets in the front, it's one of the least heated parts of shuttle. It's totally fine to land without it. And so as a function of this existing in the absolutely no issues bucket, STS-122 was allowed to stay on orbit for an extra date. They got a mission extension. And then while we're talking about their life on orbit, which like I'm really not talking about because, you know, they did EVAs and they, they actually had to swap EVA crew members. And, uh, you know, there, there was some interesting stuff that happened, but I think something that's 
maybe not more interesting, but definitely more, more smile inducing is Peggy Whitson, uh, was already on station. She was commanding Expedition 16. I believe this was Expedition 16. Um, but she had a birthday on February 9th and, uh, she did, uh, uh, press conference or she's, you know, did, did one of the, one of the phone calls from ISS. And, uh, she said, yeah, my birthday's coming up and Columbus is my birthday present. And I, I love that. Mm-hmm. I, I just love the attitude on station. Like it, it's such hard work to work on station, but everybody is like absolutely blissful while they're there. They're just like, I'm yeah. an astronaut. I am doing the best astronaut job uh, in the history of humanity and like very little attention is paid to the fact that there's no shower. Uh, the fact that, um, you have to work hard to make sure that you are still able to exist, uh, or to have a, a happy life on earth afterwards. Nobody worries about, uh, how, you know, so many people have vision degradation, uh, or, you know, they have to go uh, pee in a spacesuit on a very uncomfortable eight hour EVA. Like nobody cares that they're spending most of their time doing, dr- you know, lab drudgery that, you know, we normally assign to graduate students. Like nobody cares because mm-hmm. you're in space, you're on ISS, you're living the dream. You know, if you're an astronaut, that's, that's pretty much the best you can do besides going to the moon, uh, you know, hopefully soon going to the moon. Um, so I, I, it's the whole birthday present quip just feels like, uh, like a reflection of, of, of that on orbit bliss to me. Oh, well, awesome, Ben. Thank you. And I really appreciate, uh, just the, the depth going into this <laughs> failure. I mean, I, mm-hmm. Uh, this this is a case study, evidently, and I feel like you just gave an audio case study. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Great. So so like you know, I, I try to go into uh, an interesting level of depth every time. Uh, I mean, that's that's what the show is, right? Is like as as much depth as we can get into without just being. I was going to say entirely tedious, but we definitely get tedious sometimes, and that's kind of what I like. But when I built or when I came up with the clue last week, failing wet, I, for the life of me, could not figure out how you're supposed to tell that something's wrong when you faked a sensor input. And so that's really what drove my, my investigation. My, my I mean, my research in the, I did my own research Facebook sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, I just wanted to know how, how can a sensor fail wet? Like how can you get a bad reading from a sensor and you, the problem is not with the sensor. What, how, how is this in any way helpful? And I, I hope it's clear now why they, uh, why they hold these sensors dry, uh, during taking or why they did. Cause we don't, <laughs> we don't launch these sensors anymore, <laughs> but, but maybe a, a, maybe a similar, uh, technique will be used on, uh, SLS. Well, all right. So David, you're up next. Next week is the 8th to the 14th of February. Do you have a clue for us? Uh, yes, I do. And next week will be in 2009. And the clue is 102.2 degrees and 77 protons. I like that clue. That's a good one. Uh, I, I like, I think it's clever. And so uh, I'm, I'm excited. I, I already know it, <laughs> but I'm excited <laughs> to see uh, everyone uh, try to take a guess and see if you uh, if you know what it is. And so if you want to take a guess, that again next week in 2009, then shoot us an email or tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck. Good luck.
Well, let's uh, let's just very quickly do upcoming spaceflight events. Just one, and that is on February 2nd. That's a Falcon 9 with Enroll 87, so another National Reconnaissance Office satellite. Um, this one is launching from Vandenberg, it looks like. So um, this is a classified payload, no surprise there, just a U.S. government spy satellite. Yep. So, yep, there you go. And that is launching on, again, the 2nd at 2018 UTC from Vandenberg Space Force Base, from Slick 4E. All right, that's your upcoming spaceflight event. All right, so just that one. And with that, let's do the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Chris, a.k.a. Stye Garfield, Deathkin, Mike, VT, Colin, The Greek, Gopal, Chevy Jacosi, and Alex for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.